Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Uh, if you remember where we were last week, I think where we are in the notes, we are on the back side of that second sheet, page four. We're going to start around uh, chapter six, where it says chapter sixteen, verses one through thirty-four. If you remember, we talked about the uh, where are we historically? We're about fifteen hundred BC, right? We're sitting at the at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is where uh, God had brought His people from out of Egypt, right? Through signs and wonders, He brings them out with a with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and He brings them to Mount Sinai, where He gives them His law, and then He gives them more law, more about what it means to be God's covenant people, what it means to have a holy God. This is, by the way, this is uh, lesson five, right? We're gonna. Finish up lesson five tonight and then start on lesson six and get as far as we can, all right? So again, he's, he's there. we have this question of what is it like when a holy God lives among unholy people? And so we talked about that with the holiness code last week and all these things about uh, what, they can, what they can eat, what they can't eat, what they can't even touch, right? Not that, not that, uh, that these things make them holy, but they are reminders of the fact that God has called them out and has set them aside for himself. He has made them holy. And so these things were external markers. They were things that would remind them of their unique position being God's covenant people. All right? But we also talked about how that gets tedious, right? It was tedious just to read all this stuff, let alone to actually do it on a regular basis, right? All the different sacrifices that must be offered and all the, and then uh, all, all these different things. And so we talked about, well, then what happens then? What happens then when the people sin? And specifically, we even see, like, what happens when the people sin and don't even realize that they're sinning? Like, unintentional sins. And so God provides an answer for that. So let's look there at chapter 16, verses 1 through 34. We're not going to read all those verses. Uh, but let's, let's talk again as we see that again with the question, what's going to happen to Israel when they don't live up to this towering and impeccable holiness? And for that matter, what will happen to us? And so the answer is, and you see this there in your notes, the day of atonement. The day of atonement. This is the one day of the year where God would provide a, a way by which people, everyone's sins could be forgiven and the nation could be made holy again. Right? We've already seen that the, the priests made daily sacrifices for all kinds of sins, right? Leviticus chapter 1 through verse 15 deals with all kinds of sacrificial laws. It's law, 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 then there's grace on the Day of Atonement. So on this day, this Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur, right? on this day, the, whole, the high priest will go before Yahweh on behalf of the people to make reconciliation for them, Right? to make reconciliation for them. And the question would be then, why is this reconciliation necessary? It's because, uh, like Isaiah would say, um, their sins have made a separation between them and their God. Because Israel's sins have made a separation between them and Yahweh. This reconciliation will require the sacrifices of a substitute and prayer on behalf of the people. The high priest will then return to the people with the joyful declaration that their sins have been atoned for, right? Paid for. 
That's what atonement means, right? Payment for sin. That they are, with this joyful declaration that their sins have been atoned for and forgiven, and they are now reconciled, made right with Yahweh. Right? So let's look at the Day of Atonement. Somebody read for me Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time in a holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the altar, for he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. All right. So, and we see this also in the notes, right? So we, he talks about the, the, the holy of holies or the, the most holy place. So you can put that there in your notes. The most holy place. This was where the, this was the inner part, the most inner part of the tabernacle. This is the place where Yahweh's very glory dwelt. Think about that for a second. An earthly representation of the God of the universe here in this Right. So, why would he die if he went in there? Because the, the glory of the Lord would crush him because of his sin. So the high priest can't just go in whenever he wants, right? Hey, this Saturday, let's go to the Holy of Holies and have a picnic. That does not happen, right? It does not work that way. Um, so look there. let's look there at, at verses 3 through 6. Leviticus 16, 3 through 6. Thus Aaron shall come to the oh, to read it. Yeah. Okay. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban. He shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. All right, so again, first, Aaron must atone for what? What kind of sins? His sins. His own sins, that's right. His sins, before he can do anything for anybody else, right? All right, now let's look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull, um, shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. So, with only with the sacrifice of atonement can he enter into the most holy place. But he still must do so very carefully. Look there now at verses 13 through 14. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Okay. So there's a lot of things happening here, right? So, But the smoke, let's think about the smoke here. The smoke was meant to cover the glory of the Lord so that it wouldn't lash out and consume him. Whew. Does anybody else feel a little tense here? Right? This is why this is why priests would wear a would wear a, a rope around the ankle and bells, right? As long as the bells are ringing, he's okay, right? If the if the bell stops ringing, use the rope and pull him out so you don't have to go in there and get him, right? This is serious stuff, right? So we see that there in thirteen through fourteen. Uh, now 
now that his own sins were covered, his own sins were atoned for, he can represent now and intercede for the people. See that there in your notes. Now he can intercede, he can represent the people. And to do so, he's going to take two goats. He's going to take two goats in with him. Take two goats to the entrance. One goat is going to be a sin offering. A sin offering. It's going to be a sin offering for the entire nation. The other is going to serve as what we would call a scapegoat. You ever wonder where that phrase comes from? Here it is, and we're going to find out what it means in just a second. So before we do that, though, let's go ahead and look at the, the, the sin offering goat first. Look at verse 15, Leviticus 16, 15. Somebody read that for me. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring his blood inside the veil, and do with his blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. All right, so we see that again. He's sprinkling the blood of the, of the, the, the first goat here, cleansing the most holy place. Next, Aaron will deal with the scapegoat, right? This is verses 21 and 22. Who, who started reading over here? Yes. Phil, go for it, Phil. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on his head and the lap goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all the sins, and he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on himself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and shall release the goat in the wilderness. Okay. So I want you to see this picture here, right? This was... The people would all see their sins being transferred. Their, the guilt for that really should be theirs for their sin being transferred over to this goat. Right? Then they would watch as their sins were, metaphorically speaking, taken away, sent out of the camp, never to be seen or heard from again. What a picture that is. Now, let's think about this. How often would Israel have to do this kind of event? How often do we say this was going to happen? Every year. Every year. Right? We see that in uh, verses 29 through 34. I'll go ahead and read that one. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. So, and you see this in your notes, the ritual was to be performed once a year. Once a year. It was a serious and a solemn day. At the same time, it was a joyous occasion because on this day, all the sins of the nation were forgiven and they were reconciled to God. 
And it's still a very important day. Again, we, we know the name, right? The name is Yom Kippur, right? This is a, a very important day in the life of the, of the Jewish nation, the, the, the nation of Israel. And, and we see that there. So now, why did I take you through all this detail? Why would, why would, why would we go with all, this, all these different uh, minute details about all these different things? Well, think about it all. Think of all that had to be done, all that blood, such a tedious process. Year after year, it was great that sins were forgiven, but it would have to be done again next year. Blood was all over the place, and everyone has to come watch. How serious God must take sin. That blood must be shed again and again and again. All of this emphasizes God's holiness. All of this emphasizes the people's sinfulness. And all of this also emphasizes God's grace. But remember, it's still only a shadow. It's a shadow. It's, this is where we see that wonderful word again, typology. Remember, we've been talking about this before where you have types and anti-types. The type is the shadow. The anti-type is the substance. The, the type is the signpost. It's the, the direction marker. And the anti-type is the destination. It's the real thing. It's the, it's the thing that everything is pointing to. And so here, again, we, we, it was always, the Day of Atonement was always intended to point towards something greater. It's always supposed to point toward for, to its anti-type, the one great day of atonement that would end all days of atonement. And of course, I'm talking about what? The cross. That's right. I'm talking about Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who made the greater sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And he never had to atone for his own sins first, church. Right? All, I mean, half of this process was just the high priest making atonement for himself before he could do anything for anybody else. And Jesus, our great high priest, he never had to do this once. Because he had no sin of his own. So let me just read to you some passages about this from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verses 23 through 27. It says, Also there were many priests because, um, because they were prevented by what? By death. They were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has, uh, has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Then if we look over at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, it says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true typology, right there, um, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that we should offer him, uh, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood, the blood of another. Um, he would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, at once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen. And then, chapter ten, verse one: For the law 
having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things. Right? So again, we see how all this was meant to point forward to what Galatians says that in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. This is good. Very, very good. In all this, we can see that Christ fulfilled the great day of atonement. And, and now, our consciences are sprinkled clean because of His work. And we're brought near to God to worship because He delivers us into the very presence of God. Just he, a quick question. Sure. So were all the Levite men priests? Or were only a few chosen? I mean how No, not all the Levites were. I mean, but the they men. were but they were all serving they were all, whether they were whether they were priests or whether they were singers or whether they were temple servants in some some form, they some were capacity. all capacity. Right. So I guess God chose the high priest? They were all priests, but only certain ones were high priests. Was it the casted lot? Was that how it worked? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so yes, yes. So, because it changed, yeah. Well, some of them died. I assume. Some well, that's died. exactly because they were behind exactly, the curtain. Because they were prevented by death. <laughs> they were prayed up. Exactly. So, um, let's see. All right. So again, Christ Himself has fulfilled this because only by Christ we are taken into the presence of God. That's why I. I struggle with the idea that a, that a worship leader or a pastor leads you into the presence of God because I don't do that. I can't do that. I'm a sinful man. God himself does that for us. He leads us into his presence in worship, and it's only by the sacrifice of the Son. All right? Um, so he is the perfect sac- sacrifice. Heaven is the real tabernacle, the true temple where God dwells. Our sins are covered forever. And in Christ, God has made a permanent end to the guilt of our sin. We are justified, just as if I'd never sinned in his sight. So, conclusion. Uh, Leviticus shows us then that the call to be holy is a serious one. Why? Because God is holy and we're not. Um, And we take this, we need to hear it with great sobriety. We uh, but we do it also as people who are aware of our own sin and our great need of an atonement that's outside ourselves. Right? We can't make ourselves right. We can't by doing more, by trying to do good things now. We doing good things now doesn't undo the the sinful things we've done before. Right? And James tells us if you break one law, you're guilty for breaking the whole thing. And so we see in this we need a savior. We need a great high priest who can make a sacrifice for us that we can never make for ourselves. Um, so, And we see this now. And with the completed picture, and it, I, have you noticed that, man, for an Old Testament class, we sure do talk about the New Testament a lot, right? Because it's all one. It all functions together. Um, and so under the new covenant now, right, that's completed and enacted in Christ uh, through his sacrifice, we look to Jesus to establish our standing before God. It's only as sinners justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we could ever make a run at living holy lives. Lives that are with a different ethical bearing than that of unbelievers. For our motive is what? To be holy because the God that we serve is holy. A couple things of application. We talked about Nadab and Abihu last week. Uh, So that's there in your notes. Um, If you have any questions about that, we can come back to that later on. 
Uh, but secondly, uh, secondly, we see uh, Hebrews 12, 14, uh, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. We are told to strive for holiness, right? When we think about that, what, how does that, what does that look like then? Because you just told me, Justin, that I can't get, I can't become holy on my own. So how do I then strive for holiness? Well, that's where Philippians 2, 12, and 13 comes in, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Aim for holiness in everything. How do we know what holiness looks like? The Bible shows us, right? Aim for holiness. Strive with everything that's in you. you. Strive for holiness. Strive to stir up your brothers and sisters in holiness. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Jesus, praise the Lord, has done and is doing, even now, the heavy lifting for us. So we work hard, yet when the day is done, we know, yet not I, but through Christ in me. All right? Any questions about Leviticus before we move on to Numbers? Speak now or until 7.30, hold your peace. All right, let's move on. Numbers. All right, so again, as we start out, we talk about our context. What's our historical context? We've got a time and a place, right? 1500 B.C., thereabouts. And where are we? Sinai. Sinai. We're still there, right? But we're fixing to move out. Fixing to make our way toward the promised land, at least for a while. So um, that's the idea. Um, Just to think, again, 500 years before this, we would have seen where God was making promises to Abraham. And now at this point, for the first time, these promises are on the verge seemingly of coming true. we're, 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 We're this close to the promised land. Uh, so that takes us right from historical context into our redemptive historical context, right? Again, what is redemptive history? Redem- we talk about redemptive history is that the Bible is one story, right? We have all these different stories in the Bible, but they're really telling one story. It's a story about a God who created all things and who is redeeming a people for himself, that he would be praised for the greatness of his grace. That's the storyline of the entire Bible, friends. And so we see this here. We've been moving along, right? We had the fall. We had creation. Then we had the fall. God calling Abraham to a, to a place he'd never been before, to a place that God was showing him, and he made him promises. And he says, You're gonna own, this land is going to belong to your descendants. And Abraham lived that entire time as an, as an outsider, as, a, as an exile, right? So he passes on these promises to his son Isaac, who passes these promises on to his son Jacob, renamed Israel. There's a famine, right? Just so happens, <coughs> just so happens that one of his sons, Joseph, gets sold into slavery by his brothers to a land named Egypt. God provides for him to become one of, really, almost second in charge to, to Pharaoh. And so that then now Jacob and the covenant promise family, including Judah, who is going to be very important to us going forward, they come to Egypt, right? It's not about the, hey, look at what Joseph did, right? 
Joseph trusted God and he got a great position and you can too. That's not the point. Joseph was sold into slavery, uh, betrayed by Potiphar's wife, put into prison, raised up to his his place of status, but he's he's a an Israelite in a pagan nation under a pagan king with a pagan wife. So this can't be the payoff, right? Really, all of this is so that Judah doesn't starve, so that his descendant Jesus comes, and so that you and I can be saved. And so this is redemptive history. God is unfolding this great and grand promise that he's been unfolding ever since Genesis 3.15, that that the promised seed of the woman would crush the skull of the serpent, Satan himself. And we, so we keep asking this question, who is this promised seed? Is it, is, it, uh, is it Abel? No. Is it Seth? No. Is it Noah? No. Is it Abraham? Isaac? Jacob? Joseph? No, because they all died. Right? Is it Moses? Well, we're going to get an answer today. right? So here we are. So now we're at Mount Sinai. The people have received God's law and they're about to head out. And they're going to end up in the plains of Moab, right on the other side of the, of the, the Jordan River. They can see the promised land, friends. They can almost taste it. They're right there. This is the closest we've come to God's people being in God's place under God's rule that we've seen yet in redemptive history. So let's find out what happens. All right? So our theme, you see that there in your notes, our theme for numbers? Considering how I've just built this up, this theme really, in some ways, is a bit of a disappointment, but it has this beautiful silver thread through it. So Yahweh is still with his people and faithful to them, even though they battle with unbelief, distrust, and disobedience that result in their failure to enter the promised land. Yikes. All right, so basically two thematic ideas that we see here. All right, two thematic ideas. First, we see the unbelief, rebellion, and disobedience of the people. These are the same people that just crossed through the Red Sea. And and yet you're going to see complete and total rebellion against God and against against his appointed leader, Moses. Um, At the same time, juxtaposed against that, you're going to see the faithfulness, patience, and grace of Yahweh. And you're actually going to see how the, the unfaithfulness of God's people only highlights the faithfulness of God. It's beautiful. Even in this depressing book, we see grace beautifully on display. So let's keep going together, all right? Because Yahweh's still going to dwell among them, and he's going to give the land to somebody else, to the next generation. So you see the outline there with pivotal texts. Uh, that's there for your resources, for you. Again, what's the whole point in this? It's not just so you can have, we can have a fun time uh, looking through notes on a, and filling in blanks on a Wednesday night, right? The whole goal is that you can take this home, use it as a resource for you to study the Bible on your own, and, and, and teach it to somebody else. We are not here for ourselves. The Great Commission is clear. We are here to make disciples of all nations. We, all of us, not, past, not just pastors, not just Sunday school teachers. Every single believer is given this commission. So let's get busy and study with that end in mind. Okay? Here we go. Theme text. You'll see, really, this is a story of two different generations. Where am I on time? Wow, that's a lot, of co- lot to cover in 15 minutes. Here we go. Uh, 
So in chapter 1, verse 2, you see a census that's being taken. This is the first generation. This is the generation that saw, that again, went through the Red Sea. This is the people that they heard the thunder and they saw the smoke and the lightning on Mount Sinai. They, they were there. They saw all this happen. And so there's a census being taken here in chapter 1. Now, we, if we were to kind of blaze on through to chapter 26, we see another census being taken. This is a census of a different generation. These are entirely different people altogether. So this is the next generation, right? Star Trek fans rejoice, right? Uh, this is the next generation. These are people that are the descendants, the, the children of the ones that we just talked about in chapter 1, right? So the, again, an entirely different generation because the first generation perished in the wilderness. So how did this happen? How did, what happened to an entire generation dying out before they get to go... Uh, potentially into the promised land. Here we go. We'll find out. Starting in chapters 1 through 10. Chapters 1 through 10 tell us of this first generation. Right? The very generation rescued from Egypt. These chapters, they're still at the foot of Mount Sinai and they're ready to break camp. They're ready to pack up and start heading toward the promised land. Uh, these chapters are very optimistic. This is it. This is everything that they've been dreaming of, waiting for. They've been hearing God's promises all their lives, and here they are. Full of anticipation. Chapter 1, again, we see this census. Chapter 2 is a manner, the manner in which the various tribes of Israel were to organize themselves as they camped, right? Um, what's interesting about this camp is that the tabernacle was always positioned perfectly perfectly in the middle of the camp perfectly in the middle of the tribes hence the people were always reminded that Yahweh was dwelling with them the people were always reminded that God was dwelling with them alright so um, always at the center of their camp the following chapters then describe some of the further duties and vows for certain groups of people and so this is where you see some of the some of the um, different responsibilities that started breaking down of like, well, this is um, these are people that, that look after the ark while it's being, these are the people that pack up the camp, these are the people that carry the things as they travel, and so it's, it's really neat to see um, ways that like how all this worked together. I can't think of another way to say that. Um, Organizational so. skills. Yeah. Well, our God is a God of order, right? The, this is the way that he works. And so they're just, again, but everybody's got a job. Everybody has a role. Uh, and so it's so cool. Um, and even the, when, when, they, when they move, even like they, they go in the order in which things are needed. Right? And again, this is not just like somebody came up with this and said, hey, why don't we do it this way? This is exactly the way that God gave them these instructions. He's a, he's a genius, y'all. I, I, I love that. Um, so that everything works perfectly in order. Um, and so, which I think is interesting, considering that later on they're going to they're gonna start arguing and fighting amongst each other. When, even though everything that God has given them is perfect, everything that God has given, the way that he's told them to go about things is right and true, and they, they really guard the community in a lot of ways from, from strife, yet they find a way. Human sinfulness finds a way to be not content with what God has given. Um, so let's see. Uh, and then we go to the end of chapter 6. There's a blessing here. Kind of familiar, right? Uh, Carrie Job's made this really really uh, popular lately. Um, let's see. Chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. Somebody read that for me. 
Yeah, this is Numbers, Numbers 6, 22 through 27. You're good. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons to bless the people of Israel with a special blessing. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Whenever Aaron and his sons bless the people of Israel in my name, Amen. So this is a benediction. It's it's optimistic. There's there's hope that's all throughout this. It reminds the Israelites that no matter what else is going on, that Yahweh is for them. He's with them. He's faithful to them. He's made a covenant with them, and he's not going to break it. Um, so he is pleased with them, and it's it's a good and joyous thing to be God's people, to be Yahweh's people. So then uh, the following chapters describe the tabernacle and the way that the Passover, uh, how the Passover was celebrated. Uh, and even to guide the people in their travels, we read in chapter 9, verses 15 through 18. Um, it says this, Now on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, from evening until morning. It was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So it was always... The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained and camped. So by this, again, they knew. They knew that Yahweh himself was leading them to the promised land, right? Yahweh himself was leading them to the promised land, all right? Um, again, as I said, it was an, it's, an, it's an exciting time. It's an optimistic time. And at the end of chapter 10, we even see them setting out from Sinai. So look there at chapter 10, verses 35 through 36. Somebody read that for me. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, that your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. Amen. So, this is exciting, right? Um, so all the signs look good. The people are obedient. Yahweh is with them. He's among them. He's guiding them. And then... Then chapter 11 happens. Um, starting in chapter 7, the climate, the climate changes around them uh, and amongst them. The people start grumbling. Then they lose faith. And you see that progression there in your notes. They grumble, then they lose faith. And then they finally just, they kind of out and out and just turn on, on God and, and Moses. All right? So let's look at one instance of unbelief and rebellion in which the whole quest to take the land kind of hangs on and falls. So this is chapter 13. So let's look at chapter 13 um, versus, uh, well, context first. Context, they're about to go into the land. They're camping there on the, on the plains of Moab. They're ready to go across the river. And so they send, they send spies. They send 12 spies, one for each tribe. And so, and they, they and, the, and again, 17 through 20 tell us that their mission was simply fact-finding, fact-gathering. Fact you see that there in your notes. What's their mission? To gather facts. That's, what that's their job. 
Give us a lay of the land. Okay? And then we see this. When they return and they give their, uh, their report back to everybody, this is what they say. Uh, let's look at verses 27 through 29. This is chapter 13, verses 27 through 29. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Not exactly exuberant, is it? Right? This is not what Moses was hoping to hear back. Really, if you look at verse 30, this is probably more along the lines of what Moses was hoping for. Somebody read verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. See, these are words of faith. I think you see this there in your notes as well. These are words of faith. Right? The kind of report that Moses had hoped for, these were words of faith. But they were words from the minority. Right? This is from Caleb, Caleb and Joshua. They were, they were two. How many more does that mean? Ten, Ten that said otherwise, right? And, and really, they're not, it's not just these ten. Look what happens. Um, look at verse 31. So these are words of unbelief. These are words of unbelief. They sized up the inhabitants of the land. They sized up themselves. And through their own logic, they came to this conclusion that they cannot possibly take the land from these people. They'd forgotten that their possession of the land will depend on what? Their might? Their weapons? No. The presence of God in their midst. Right? They'd forgotten this. Not the strength of their own arms. Uh, had they not just seen what Yahweh did to the Egyptians, where was their faith? Where was their trust? Where was their confidence in, the, in Yahweh, the God of the universe who dwelt among them? And again, it wasn't just these spies who lacked faith. Look at now at chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword and our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said one to another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. So the whole assembly responds to this report with just good old-fashioned mutiny. Again, think about everything they've seen. Everything that God's carried them through. How God has displayed himself to them in power and in might and in covenant-keeping love. And they're responding in mutiny. 
But I want you to see this too. Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, they, they tear their clothes and they, they make this, uh, this, this appeal to them based on God's power and might. So let's look there at verses 5 through 9 now. I'll go ahead and read that for shortness of time. So then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, and, uh, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephna, uh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord for fear of the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And their pleas won the hearts of the people, right? Wrong. Wrong. The next verse says, and all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And now, and here, here's the key, friends. Here's where their rebellion, their unbelief is shown for what it is. This is not just rebellion against Moses and against Aaron and the other leaders. This is not just refusing to believe a bad report or refusing to believe this report from Caleb and Joshua. This is an outright rebellion against Yahweh himself. They were just reminded by these two men, the Lord had the Lord delights in us. He wants us to have this land. And if he's with us, we can surely take it. Do not fear them. Trust the Lord. And what do they say? Put them to death. You're going to hear that kind of language all throughout the Old Testament as God's people for, because of sin and pride and unbelief will try to take out those that God has set aside to proclaim his word. It's going to happen again again. So the rebellion, again, we see it for what it is, and as I um, it's at this point that God reminds them that he's there with them. And it, it's not a pretty picture, right? Look there in verses 10 through 12, and I want you to notice Yahweh's displeasure his wrath being kindled against their unbelief. Chapter, 10, or chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before the, all the children of Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. Who's he talking to? Moses. He says, I'm going to wipe them out, Moses. I'm going to start again with you. I'm going to make a better nation than they are from you. So what happens here? We don't really have time to get into it, but friends, this is where we'll pick up next week. And I want you to go ahead and read the rest of this chapter and see what Moses is about to do is going to point towards the coming ministry of Christ. And I want you to see this. This is someone with whom the Lord has placed His Spirit upon. He has, he has placed Moses in this position. So don't just think, well, man, God seems kind of flighty. Like He's about to, he's about to abandon His people. 
But notice the God who is sovereign over all things, who has placed Moses in this role for such a time as this. Look at how God provides for his wrath to be to be dealt with, even in this moment. And we'll stop right there. So before we close tonight, any questions? Don't ask me how the story ends. You're going to have to read that for yourself. <laughs> yes, right. That is. Bring back your notes next week. I keep thinking about our fear of man study that we did. Yeah. Because the, the reality is how irrational is that fear of man that they had, knowing what God just accomplished right. in Egypt. And then also like thinking that Egypt, A, is like at any place to receive them since right. the Pharaoh and his army just got destroyed. And then secondly, right. like that they're going to be received well. And like there's right. like that's your answer. That's it's just but that's what fear yeah. of man does. Right. Like there are really two options. You fear the man with the rest of the ten spies, or you fear God like the two right. spies do right. and, and see his truth and the reality of, of his power. And right. so those are still the same two options on a day-by-day basis. And and we're seeing good things from Moses here at this point. But just remember, in the end, spoiler alert, Moses doesn't go into the promised land. Why? Because he's slowly getting chipped away at as he goes throughout this, right? The people keep griping, keep grumbling, keep complaining, keep challenging him. You see, he sees people all around him. Even Aaron gets disqualified from ministry as, as the high priest. And so Moses is almost like the only one left. And what does Moses do? He gets angry and he acts stupidly. And he, and he misrepresents Christ to them. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. Um, but so just remember, again... As Eugene Peterson said, that, that discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. And we can't think that just because we see him doing well here, that we should praise Moses as if he's some sort of superman. He's not. He's just like us. And so this is where, again, it's good to have people around you that remind you of what's good and right and true. Yes, to encourage you when things are difficult but also to hold you accountable when you're, when, you're li- when you're being lifted up with pride. I need that in my daily life. Cody needs that in his daily life. Each and every one of us needs that. There is no Superman here. We desperately need Christ. And we need the grace that he's provided uh, around us in this community. So let's pray together. All right. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this gift of the Old Testament. Lord, we, we agree with you that, that it's good, that it's, it's good and right and true, that it, it teaches us uh, everything that we need for life and godliness, that these things are been, have been given to us for our example, because Lord, we know we tend to gripe and complain and murmur ourselves. And we know, just like your word tells us, that ultimately all sin is against you as our creator. And so Father, thank you for exposing our sin to us through, uh, through examples that we see here, through real stories of real people in the Old Testament. And Father, thank you for showing us again that we must depend upon Christ. He's our only hope. He's the only one that can, that can save us. There's one name given among men under heaven by, by which we must be saved, and it's the name of Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, the sins of the whole world. 
Lord, we thank You. Thank You for Christ and for this Gospel, this grace in which we stand. And so, Lord, help us now. I pray that as we, as we go out, Lord, we, would You help us to understand, uh, to keep in mind context and to remember uh, what, you teach, what You're teaching us through Your Word. Lord, help us not only to understand it, but to apply, to obey the words that You're teaching us. And, um, and again, not just to live all these things unto ourselves as if that's the end of the journey. But Lord, help us not only to understand, not only to apply, but to teach. Lord, help us, each and every one of us, to, to encourage and to teach one another according to your word. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.